Don't you all look pretty? I'm really glad you're here. I'm going to encourage you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, to take them out and turn to Romans chapter 4 and just kind of put your finger there for a, a few minutes. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to find them in the pew racks there in front of you. And if you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know this, but those Bibles are there not only for your benefit now, but if you need a Bible and you don't own one, take it with you today when you leave. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. It's there for you. It's a free gift from New Hope. I'm going to ask you to take a minute and pray with me while you're finding Romans 4 and you put your finger there. Would you just uh, take a minute and bow your head? Father, we come before you as the great God, the creator of the universe. The one who spoke not only the universe into existence, but put the breath of life in our very body. And you know the day when our breath will leave our body. You know all things. Because you are the author of all things, you are the author of this living word in front of us. Father, we ask right now that you would cause it to be alive for us. You promise that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword dividing our thoughts. So Father, with your surgeon's scalpel, we ask that you would divide to the deepest part of our thinking process. I ask that you help us to be fully present in this moment. And that can happen, Father, because of the presence of your Holy Spirit. You said that your Spirit is our teacher and our guide, it's our comforter. So God, I ask that you would teach with the power of your Spirit. I will be your voice and we will be your listeners. So God, we ask that you would bless this time. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Do you find yourself wondering why you're here? I know I'm not speaking to everyone when I ask that question, but do you find yourself wondering what you're really doing here? Is it just ritual because it's Easter Sunday so you feel obligated to show up? What's the significance of spending part of your day here? I know some people get guilted into coming on Easter Sunday. I've talked to guys who said, do you see the heel marks out in the parking lot? You know, my family's dragging me in. I never hear women say, my husband had to drag me in. I hear the guys say, my wife had to drag me in. I understand that. I get that. You know, Easter comes around and people sometimes feel like a sense of, I got to be there. I'm supposed to be part of this thing. There ought to be something really significant about a day like this to cause you to set aside your normal routine and come into an auditorium and, and sing with a bunch of people. Why is it such a big deal? If we can't answer that, we really shouldn't be here. We should go home and watch the Tigers play baseball. I know they're going to be on in a couple hours. We just understand that we may as well leave if we can't answer that really big question. Is it legitimately a big enough deal to cause you to put on your finest clothing? And you, you do look fine. Is it, a, is it a big enough deal to cause you to put some of that liquid gold into your gas tank and drive here? Is it a big enough deal to cause you who normally go to church to invite your friends to come to a setting like this and ask them to participate in worshiping and singing something they probably don't really fully understand. Does this day represent the greatest moment in the history of the world? When we had staff meeting way back in January, Michael asked me, what are you going to teach on Easter weekend? And I said, It wasn't flippantly, I just said it very quickly because I thought about it. The greatest moment in the history of the world. He said, no, come on, really. What are you going to teach on on Easter weekend? I said, the greatest moment in the history of the world. 
And Debbie said, well, no pressure there at all. It is a big deal. It is the biggest event in the history of the world. And I'm going to show you why. In your bulletins this morning when you came in, if you grabbed one, there's an insert in there that lists a ton of historical events. And I put this together over this last week. Your list, if you don't have one, maybe you can look at your neighbor's list. Maybe they have one or you can grab one from out in the in the atrium there, they're still sitting probably a few out on the table. But your list might be a little different than mine. I put this list of historical items together, and here's how I based it on this decision. The items you find listed there had to have an impact, not regionally, but globally, to the degree that it changed the culture of the entire planet. And so I started with the global flood of Noah, and it moved on through, you see the great pyramids, the construction of the pyramids there. Moved right on through, we get to the life of Christ, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection as a standalone point. Moved right on through to September 11th, 2011. 1953, the discovery of DNA, a double helix. All those items on that list culturally impact the entire globe. Why does this one item stand out? Ultimately, we have to ask this question on Easter weekend. Why does the resurrection of Jesus impact my life? A great moment in history has to have a great beginning. There has to be a story that leads up to it. What's the story leading up to this? The greatest moment in the history of the world began with a lie. A lie so monumental that it ushered in death with it. Physical death. The collapsing of the planet. The lie that Satan brought into the garden of God's creation when he entered into the garden and deceived man. He brought man into his war against God. Rebellion from mankind. Death and deception. A lie so monumental that the clock started ticking. God's eternal time clock recognized that the power of death had been unleashed. At the very same moment as the time in which man began to fall, the fall of man in the garden, the great machinery wheels of God's mercy were set in motion. At that very moment, God began to enact his plan because our God is a God of order, he's a God of purpose, he's a God of justice. But he's also a God of mercy. When Moses said to God, what should I tell people they can call you? He said, I am that I am. But later when Moses asked that same question, standing before God, can I just see you? God's response was, I'm abounding in mercy. I am merciful. That's your God who put this plan of action in order. So the God of all gods, the great and mighty maker of everything, chose to give himself for you and me. And the design of the plan would be incredibly intricate, so complex that no man on earth could ever dream it up on his own. We couldn't conceive of the idea that God would offer himself. So I'm going to give you four specific truths this morning that relate to everything that I've just said. And these four truths, you can write them down on the blank side of your history list that you got there, or you can just listen along if you want to. Here's the first one. At the apex of history, at the very culmination of man's time on earth, God sent his son. 
That's what we're told according to Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. So truth number one, that he lived. It's not a question, it's a statement that he breathed and walked and lived on this planet. The preponderance of the evidence is overwhelming to the degree that 85% of the citizens of the United States of America believe that Jesus is an actual historical figure, one who actually lived and walked and breathed on this planet. Truth number two, how he lived is not a question because of the preponderance of the evidence, the magnitude of the materials written about his life. In the very short span of time, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, But in a three-year lifetime, three-year ministry action on earth, he totally changed the course of human direction. Culture was forever changed because of Jesus Christ. Women and children were elevated to a level they had never been known to before. Society began to value women, value children. Slaves were treated differently. Hospitals were erected. Universities arrived on the scene. The care for the poor and the needy, it all comes out of the life of Jesus Christ. Everything turned on a dime because he lived. No one ever, ever, any human on the face of the earth ever had such a profound influence on the direction of humanity. That's why John wrote this in John 21, 25. You'll see it on the screen. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, there comes a turning point in human history. Truth number three leads us to the tip of the spear. And truth number three is this. He had to die at a specific moment in time. He had to die because it was God's foreordained plan. And we step now into the realm where time and eternity merge together. And it had never happened before. Where an eternal being came to be part of earth and eternity merged with time. And God shows up on the face of the earth for a specific purpose. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 9.26. Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. Why? to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The very idea of a human sacrifice is repulsive, especially to our society. The concept of God being that sacrifice is just so hard to comprehend. It goes well beyond the realm of not being popular. It's just so mind-boggling. But atonement... This word I'll explain in a minute. Atonement must be seen through the lens of God's eyes, not through the lens of human perspective. Understand that the sacrificial system was set up at God's command. It wasn't a negotiation. God didn't sit down with mankind and say, hey, what should we do about this problem with sin? That wasn't the deal. God said, this is what you will do. This is what it will look like. If we're going to have a sacrificial system to eliminate sin, this is what you will do. It's the demand of a holy God. And according to God's laws, a sacrifice is demanded. That's what Scripture says, Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You understand the Bible is replete with what God says is required. And there must be an atonement. An atonement simply means a paycheck. There must be a payment in exchange for the sins that are committed. 
And so we'll discover that in the ancient Hebrew system, if I, if I can get archaeological with you just for a minute, in the, in the ancient Hebrew system, God put in place a system of requirements, things that they would do to carry out these sin offerings. There was an apparatus that was used representing the presence of God on earth. And this particular apparatus is very familiar to us today because of 20th century film. We're, we're very familiar with the lost Ark of the Covenant. That was the representation of God's presence. I can't still to this day see that without thinking of Indiana Jones. Break out in song. Dun, 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 dun. Once a year, this Ark was seen by one man on planet Earth. Now understand, it was built according to God's specifications. He designed it. This is what an artist thinks it might have looked like. God designed it, said that it would be built of gold. It will represent my presence. And once a year, it's placed inside the very holy of holies, the inner chamber of the inside of the temple, where no voice was heard, absolute quiet. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take an offering of blood, the blood from a sacrificial lamb, and walk inside through the various chambers into the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God dwelt. And he would present the blood sacrifice before God. It was an enormous responsibility. That comes right from God's Word. Exodus 30.10 speaks of this. Aaron, it says right here, Aaron is the first high priest of Israel. Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. The horns are the corners of the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year he shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. When someone uses a word three times in one paragraph, I think they really want me to get something. God used the word atonement three times in that short little sentence there. He really wanted us to get an atonement. Now, the Holy of Holies, the blood had to be offered in a specific manner. Only the high priest, only one day a year, no human voice heard. The only thing in there that you could detect, the burning of a candle. You've sat in your, probably in your home in rooms at night, nothing going on, everyone's asleep, and maybe you have a candle burning or the flicker of a flame. And you can hear just the crackle. That's all the high priest could hear. And he wasn't to speak. The center of the Ark of the Covenant, where the angels spread their wings over the top of this area of pure gold, the very center of the lid was known as the mercy seat of God. The place where propitiation was made. Propitiation, a big $10 word, I'll explain that in a minute. But it literally means where God's wrath against sin was put away. Why? This is God's word again. Leviticus 17 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Understand, this is God's standard. This is not the word according to Mark. So the word according to God is this, the blood makes atonement for one's life. That's what we're told according to Scripture. Here's the problem. The problem with the sacrificial system is it had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You getting tired of over? Okay, you get a feeling for that? Over and over and over. Hundreds of years turned into thousands. Over and over. Why? Because people fail constantly. 
there's constantly sin. A permanent solution was needed. We enter the permanent solution, Jesus. The permanent solution is Jesus. We're told that Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the place of propitiation. His blood does not just cover sin, it takes away sin. That's the amazing truth about Jesus Christ. So we're told this according to 1 John 2 too. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Well, what is propitiation? It literally means that's the name that was used associated with the lamb that was killed who surrendered his life and gave the blood for the offering. It was known as the propitiation sacrifice. So Jesus is called the propitiation sacrifice, the one who's turned his life over for us. So let's revisit the first three truths. That he lived, not in question. How he lived, not in question. Why he lived, that he had to die, not in question. Truth number four. He had to be resurrected. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this before. Jesus had to be resurrected. And I know that seems like a no-brainer, but I'm going to explain to you why. Why the resurrection? And I ask the question because most people cannot answer that question. The common answer would be, well, to defeat death. Well, yes, that's part of the answer, but that's not the complete answer. There is something that God wanted everyone to know, and it's buried in the Easter story. I'm going to show you four perspectives on the Easter story very quickly. The four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each categorize this. First, we'll get the longest explanation from Matthew. So look with me on the screen at Matthew 28.1. I know it's familiar to you, but bear with me. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. By the way, that's code for fainted. I don't know if you knew that. Okay, so the Roman guards fainted. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. The one thing that God wanted communicated from the angel directly to the disciples, he's alive. He's risen. I know you know that, but I want you to see the reason why. Mark 16, 6 says this, He has risen, he is not here. Luke 24, 5, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Now Luke adds something really fascinating onto the end of it. Verse 10, he tells us that the women, when they went out and told the disciples, they didn't believe it. They thought it was foolishness. Look with me, verse 10. The other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. What are they stumbling over? They're stumbling over the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection. It causes people to stumble. John 20 says this, John 29, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 79% of your fellow American citizens believe not only in the historical Jesus, 
but that Jesus actually was crucified and resurrected. According to a 2010 Rasmussen poll, intellectually, people give intellectual assent that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But for most people, it stops right there. Now, that's amazing to me because you can't get 80% of Americans to agree on anything. But that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, they give intellectual assent to that. But do they know why? I will tell you that like you, I can picture Jesus in the tomb. I can believe that he's wrapped in linen cloths. I understand the Roman crucifixion system and how they executed individuals. And I can also believe that in one glorious moment, that the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, re-entered the body and that the chest began to heave, the lungs inflated, the heart began to pump, the eyes popped open, and God in power and glory rose from the dead. God's decisive action in Christ altered forever the destiny of the world. That's why Peter said what he did in Acts 2. Look with me on the screen. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's impossible for God to be held in death. He's the God of life. Let me take you back to Romans 4 and show you why I wanted you to stick your finger in that portion of the Bible. Romans 4.25, it says this, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I don't know if you've ever seen that verse before. I see that first part. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Delivered is a judicial term. If you're familiar with the courtroom systems at all, you know that it refers to someone being handed over for their punishment. They've already been sentenced And when a criminal is handed over or put in jail, it's the word parodidomai. It means to be put into prison. It's used in Ephesians 5.2 this way. Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. That's the word right there, parodidomai. He was handed over for the sentence of death and offering as a sacrifice to God. So Jesus was delivered up for my sin. Before you get too judgmental, for your sin too. Okay? He was delivered up, the sentence of death. I get that. But when it says, I was justified through his resurrection, how? Now understand, church, the Holy Spirit caused men of old to write these truths down, instructing them so that we would understand this. There must be a very significant reason that was written down. And this principle applies to everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Raised because of our justification. Now, at the risk of making you feel like you're in high school English class, let me show you a definition so we're all on the same page for the word justify. Here's Webster's Dictionary. To prove or to show to be just, right, absolve, to judge, regard, or treat as righteous and worthy of salvation. Now, actually, this week when I discovered this definition, in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, I was shocked. I thought all those things had been erased from the American Dictionary. I never dreamed that that would be in a scholastic dictionary. But that's the literal meaning of it. Worthy of salvation. Justify. Now, here's the Greek word that's associated with it. This is the only Greek word you're going to get out of me today, I promise you. The word is dikaiosis, and it means an acquittal. So Jesus 
was delivered up because of the sentence of death that I deserved. And I was given an acquittal because of his resurrection. So you see, there's no separation in the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. They're inseparable events, church. The resurrection of Jesus was absolutely essential, and here's why. Every time the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies and stood before the Ark of the Covenant, and he had the bowl of the blood in his hand, before him, the slaughtered lamb's blood, he had a responsibility. The responsibility was to do this, to take the blood and flick it. It was the only sound in the room. Hushed silence, except for psh, 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 the spattering of the blood on the mercy seat the center between where the angels had their wings spread, the place of propitiation. If you look at the death of Jesus Christ, you understand that with a dead Savior over whom death had triumphed, you're only looking at half of the story. The responsibility of the high priest to go before God and present the blood by spattering it on the place of propitiation was that God would find the offering acceptable. That God would find favor because that's where he put away his wrath against sin. Your justification would be impossible without the second half. And I want to explain this to you so you get it very clearly. I don't often, I don't often quote myself, but I'm quoting myself this morning, okay? So I, what I did is I wrote it out so that you can see it. We'll call it the gospel according to Kring, all right? I, I just want you to see it because it's one thing when you hear someone say something. It's another thing when you read it yourself. Look at this very closely. Just as it was necessary that the high priest under Old Testament law not only slaughter the lamb at the altar, but also carry the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, so it was necessary not only that the Lamb of God should suffer death, but that he has, as the great high priest, would enter into heaven to present his righteousness before God for our justification. Now, some of you Bible scholars, you want to look at this a little bit more deeply? Look at Hebrews 11.9 later today. Hebrews 11.9 explains this fully. But you ever wondered what happened to Jesus between it is finished, the death on the cross, and Sunday morning, he has risen. What's going on with Jesus during that period of time? And we know for sure that he smashed the gates of hell because we're told that he took the gates and the keys of hell from Satan. He took the keys of death. He's the one who holds the keys to death now according to Scripture. But what we also understand according to Hebrews is that Jesus presented himself before God as the propitiation for you as the atonement. And because God found his sacrifice acceptable, payable, upon demand for all sin, for all time, a one-time payment, God raised him in the power of the resurrection. That's why I say, without the resurrection, you are not justified. So when you think of Easter Sunday from now on, if I never see you again and you show up at another church next Easter, when you think of Easter you have to look at it and say, it is evidence of my justification 
that God found the offering that was made acceptable. There could be no justification if Jesus remained in the tomb. So here's the cool deal. The fact that he rose tells us that the price has been paid, church. That God is eternally satisfied with the payment, the atonement price. So here's the truth. My sin killed him. Your sin killed him. Our sin was the cause of his death. But our justification is the cause of the resurrection. God found it acceptable. Not as though we have the power to raise Jesus. God did that. But because of our justification, he raised him. So I want you to be fully present in this moment. I know we've been in here for a little while now, but let me just ask you to reflect on what I prayed about when we started, that you would be fully present. Be fully present in this moment. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are holy. God sees you that way. It bothers me so much to no end when I hear young people that I hang around with say, holy crap, crap is not holy, people. You are holy. Do you get that? The word holy is associated with you because of the blood of Jesus Christ who gave himself freely for us. God sees you as atoned. I want you to say with me, I am justified. I'm going to give you a minute to do that. When I say three, I want you to say that because there is nothing like that sense of release to know that God sees you as holy. It's nothing more that you need to do if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. So on three, let's say it together. I am justified on three. One, two, three. I am justified. You sound like you believe it. You need to be reminded of that. Jesus died for your sins. That is true. But it's only half of the gospel. He also justified you through the resurrection. That's why the resurrection cannot be omitted. You can't neglect it. He either did rise again or he didn't. There is no middle ground. And if he did not rise again, we might as well go watch the tigers because we're pitiful people. We are the most to be pitied if he didn't actually rise again. Do you know that Paul saw that same issue? Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a sad thing if we really are hoping for Jesus in this life only. Look at me on the screen. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But gratefully, it doesn't stop there, does it? Verse 20 says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. And this is where Christianity ultimately rests and sets itself apart from everything else in the world. If you remove the resurrection and you disprove Jesus Christ's justification of you, you destroy Christianity in one blow. But as long as it stands, church, and it stands, you are justified. You are holy. There's nothing else you need to do. Yes, God has a high standard for how he wants us to live, but it doesn't make you any more saved. That's a truth many people forget. Now, what I'm about to say I know is going to tick off some people. Welcome to New Hope, okay? <laughs> I've done it before and I'll do it again. 
please just hear me on this. I believe, I personally believe, a lot of people are gathered in churches all over the United States this morning, just like here throughout the three services this weekend. I personally believe a lot of people think they are Christians because of the way they were raised, the denomination they were brought up in, maybe because they were baptized as a child. A lot of people think they are Christians. And here's what ticks people off, but they are absolutely not. And I just want to get that out on the table right now just so we're all on the same page of where I'm thinking. And here's why. Please listen to me. What I'm about to read to you, what I want you to hear are the words that Peter shared with a crowd of a whole bunch of people who thought they were godly. They thought they had the right to the kingdom of God because they were born into the Jewish faith. And Peter recognized people were way off track. They didn't understand who Jesus was and what he did. So Peter stood up in the temple and he laid all the cards out on the table. I want you to see this. I'm speaking it to you. Peter is speaking it to you. It comes from Acts 2.22. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter got it. It's impossible to hold Jesus down because what he presented as sanctification was accepted by God for our righteousness and you're justified. So death couldn't hold him down. And if you believe anything less than that, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. That is the clear mandate of Scripture. So anytime I talk with an individual who's trying to understand this, not just intellectually, but say, why? How can I know if I'm really a believer? I tell them three things. And these three things always apply. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you as a sinner? Because we're all sinners and we need a Savior. And number three, do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised again in great power and glory by God? Those are the same three things you see all the disciples ask everyone in the Bible. After the resurrection, that's what they always said. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that you need a Savior and that God raised him again? I tell you, church, a moment like this, I promise you how you respond to a moment like this will change your destiny. If you have never believed in Jesus before, I ask you this question. Have you ever come to the point where you've traded the ritual for the relationship so that you just don't show up on Easter Sunday responding to someone saying, he is risen, and you say, he's risen indeed. Yeah, oh, hum. No, he's risen indeed. I mean, that's great. And we should remember that every single day of the year because that's how we're justified. So have you ever traded the ritual for the relationship? Paul, the apostle, did the exact same thing that Peter did. He listened to all the things the disciples had to say, and he decided, I'm going to take the same message to Rome and to Athens. So Paul, in one verse, this is where I'm going to end this morning, in one verse he summed up this challenge. 
Look at with me very closely because there's three responses every time you hear this. Verse 32, Paul made the challenge out there. Now as they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Acts 17. Here's the three responses. Three responses, always the same. Do you notice it's the resurrection that they tripped over, by the way? That's what stumbled them. First response is always some will sneer. Some will mock. That's the problem when you're an intellectual processing this. Mocking is always the defense when pride feels attacked. And their pride was attacked. They had no logical defense, so they began mocking. Second response, some delayed. You notice that? We shall hear you again after we've gathered more information, after there's more evidence. And that's the curse of the intellectual. I'll delay. I'll wait. I'll put it off for a while. They view themselves as outside the system, examining it. Third response. This comes from verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Are you among that group? Are you among that group that said, I believe, I understand that, and I can stand here today and say, I am justified in the eyes of God. No matter what sin I committed in the past, I am freely forgiven. That's the God who separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's what he said. That's his promise to you. I am justified. I am justified. I am justified. You know what it is to hear the voice of Jesus calling you, and you've responded. That's the group of believers. But for those who are not there yet, who haven't really accepted this and really don't understand this, I merely have a question for you that I'm going to follow up with the last question I asked. Have you traded the ritual for the relationship? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want a brand new beginning so that God sees you as justified? Those three things that I mentioned to you earlier, you're going to find them in your bulletin this morning. There was a little insert that Billy Graham wrote that we put inside your bulletin. It's just an insert that guides you through the process of becoming a follower in Jesus Christ. You need to do nothing more than to put your trust in him and to confess you're a sinner in need of a savior and you release it to him. I'm going to close with this quote. It comes from Pastor Kirby John Caldwell. Pastor Caldwell is an African-American pastor in Texas. has a very, very large church. I love his statement. There are two great moments in a person's life, the moment you were born and the moment you realize why you were born. I will tell you that the greatest moment that you were born for is the moment that you understand the significance of what happened on the greatest day in the history of the world when Jesus was raised in great power and glory for your justification. Here's why I gave you that list of all those archaeological dates, historical dates in your bulletin this morning. If you look over that list later today, you look over it right now, you're going to notice that every single event on that list had a global impact, but only one item on that list has an eternal impact. Everything else is faded to the history of time. The annals of time merely record them in black and white. There is only one event that is still living and true today, church, and it can change your destiny. 
What I'm going to encourage you to do is stand up with me right now. I'm going to pray with you because we represent a God who is able. Michael is going to close us in a final worship set, but I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you that you remember the things that you heard this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. God, we recognize that you are able beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Father, we recognize that you put the stars in space and you put the breath of life in our lungs. You are able to separate our sin from us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, I acknowledge before you with all these people present, there is redemption in no one else but in the name of Jesus Christ. And we stand before you as a people who are redeemed. Individuals who have put their faith in you. Praising you because you are able. You are able to take our burdens and carry them away. Father, do your work in the hearts of these individuals today. For every service that was represented this weekend, God, as we take on this week, go before us reminding us that we are justified in Jesus Christ. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen.